Hi, everyone. You're listening to another episode of the Style Files podcast. I'm your host, Paloma Contreras, and I'm so excited to welcome today's guest, acclaimed New York City-based designer and creative entrepreneur, Vincent Wolf. Vincent Wolf is known for his clear, restrained, and elegant aesthetic. A passionate traveler, Vincent's frequent jaunts to exotic destinations provide him with a global perspective that he weaves into his designs. His interiors incorporate these authentic, globally sourced artifacts and furnishings with modern decor and a warm palette capturing a sense of earthy charisma and timelessness. Wolf's spaces travel through time and remain relevant in meaningful environments for his discerning client roster. For over four decades, Vincent Wolf has fostered the global development of his brand through a simplicity-driven principle that intermingles his many creative interior his many creative endeavors, interior design, photography, art collection, and international travel. From the spacious light-filled loft in New York City, where his company is headquartered, Wolf and his team at Vincent Wolf Associates build on his passion for design, maintaining an impressive portfolio that spans multinational conglomerates and private homes to hotels and restaurants across the globe. Always on the lookout for new ways in which to inspire the world of design, Wolf's eye for detail has fostered a reputation for quality appreciated by his discriminating clients and the creative industries alike. Throughout his illustrious career, Vincent has graced the pages of all the top shelter publications and received many of the industry's top distinctions. Prestigious honors include perpetual listings as an AD100 designer, El Decor's A-list, New York Space's top 50 designer, and House Beautiful Magazine's 10 most influential designers to name a few. He's also been inducted into Interior Design Magazine's Hall of Fame. Wolf is an international speaker, book author with five titles to his name and another one in the works, lauded retailer, and celebrated visionary. In 2012, Vincent received his PhD in Design and Architecture from Boston Architectural College and is currently at the helm of two companies, Vincent Wolf Associates and VW Home by Vincent Wolf. Vincent, we're so excited you could join us today. Welcome. Hi, Vincent. How are you? I am very well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm excited that it's um, fall and that there seems to be a little bit of normalcy seeming to creep back up to the surface at this point. Really? Have you found the same? <laughs> no. no. I think you're fooling yourself. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe I'm just fatigued by the whole thing and I'm, I'm tricking myself into thinking things are a little better. Well, whatever you need to do, I think <laughs> it, it helps. Have you been busy during this time? Uh, well, working on the new book. So that has taken up the time. Um, we're doing things for existing clients. We're finishing mm-hmm. jobs that had stopped because of the virus uh and we're starting a new project in the hamptons um uh, i think you know as long as we can keep ourselves you know sort of amused and interested i think that that's the best thing you can do that's the most you can hope for absolutely so. that's a good perspective to have well i'm excited to hear about another book in the works yeah, I'm very, I mean, I've been working on it now for like a year and a half, um, trying to get the right combination and the right look to the book. And I find out tomorrow if Rizzoli has approved it for us to roll on it. Um, 
it's all been written. All the photographs have been picked. All it needs is the go-ahead for us to, like, pass it on to the art director, Sam Hashid, right, who's right. a great art director. So, you know, um, and it's it's fall. It's beautiful. Uh, it, it's hard at work. Um, it's hard going to job sites. It's clients are very nervous. So what's going to mm-hmm. happen? People that were going to about to buy an apartment decided not to. It's, it's, you know, in every aspect of our lives, it's undecided. So it's, uh, you know, not easy. That's very true. How have you found that you've had to adapt uh, well, I think that you have to look at your business in a different way, uh, certainly to cut down as much expenses as possible, trying to keep connecting with clients and make them aware that you're here and, um, and that you are willing to do whatever has to be done, uh, deal with tiny projects, um, that maybe you would have put on the back burner before, but now you're bringing them forward so you can keep everybody in the office busy and you have to be able to just keep positive. You know, I I think of myself as going down a path and they are demons left and right trying to hold you back and just keep your mind focus to what your goal is to keep your business going to keep the people working for you going to try to keep your creativity alive uh you know and and that's my goal every day that's so true well let's go back to how it all started pre-pandemic and obviously you've been in business for a few decades now which is hard more than a few yeah, well, you look amazing, so no one would ever guess, but um, you've had a long and storied career in the industry, and the way that you began in the industry is actually really fascinating. I read once that you started in a sample room at a showroom and then worked your way up from there. Could you tell us a little bit about what that process, that trajectory has been like for you? First of all, yes, I, I started sweeping the floor, folding samples, but that I and that was my uh, former partner Bob Patino and I saw how he had gotten where he had gotten so I had a path to follow start in the showroom start selling start helping designers you know start freelancing you know working for a few other people and then start on my own uh, and Bob and I you know, we were business partners for a good, like, 18 years, um, which sort of got me going. And when I went on my own on in 88, I had a very strong foundation of what to do, how to do it, and an enormous amount of connections editorially. That certainly, when I went on my own, really help to propel my business to where it is now. What would you say are some of the most valuable lessons you learned from that time working with Bob that you carry with you today? I think that the lessons came before starting to work with Bob. They were for the few people that I for and worked full time for. 
And they were what not to do, you know, how to, that you must have contracts. How do you present a job? How do you design a job? What are the things that really should never, in my opinion, ever be done? Whether it was start designing the job, you know, in front of the client, what fabrics do you like? Do you like this one, that one, the other? Oh, you like that one? Fine, we'll go with that. Uh, it was not present. Part of that has to do with your sense of visualizing a total concept of a job, uh, which is how I design. When I present to a client, it is a total thought. It is not design as you go. Uh, which sort of serves different purposes. One is time is money. So the sooner you're able to create a total concept, present it to the client, have them approve it, then you start you know, collecting money and you start on your way to concluding the job. Um, the other thing is, is that my sense has always been that as a creative person, it is my job to create the total concept, not to do it as a team of client and designer. And because I think that the problem with that is, is that you never really are able to conceptualize a total thought. It's, it's just sort of developing as it goes, which I think if you do more traditional work, it can work because it, there's so many elements. If you're doing design like how I do, which is less rather than more, it's really about a total concept and not about decoration. Right, so do you feel that if, if the process is too collaborative between designer and client, you then dilute the vision? Well, and it's not that you're not wanting from them all their information, but I rather have it up front. You know, I always say to the client, give me the emotion you want and the functionality of the space, and then I will complete the picture, which is, I think it's really more important than, oh, I like that fabric or I like that chair, because you're buying and then looking at just furniture. I think that the concept and the vision and the environment is the, really the, the important element in creating an environment that is tailored to the client, not necessarily what particular single fabric they like, because it, that can always change from one thing to the other. But if you have a concept, if you have their, their likes and dislikes, and if you have how that environment should function for them, I think that's going to be a much more tailored to their taste than they're selecting a particular fabric. Right. Well, and I feel that the approach that you take then gets to the root of what the, what mood or feeling the home is meant to evoke, because it really is so much more than the furniture and the fabrics. It's about, you know, that emotion, the story that it tells, um, the people that live there and how they're reflected in the space. And you're right. You have to dig a little deeper in order to get to all of those things. Because I think if it's about 
oh, I like this fabric. Well, maybe two weeks from now you don't. And the moment you go through that, you start to lose the, the purpose of what that room was. And the purpose is a home, comfort, a feeling of, you know, feeling really good when you're in that space. And a particular fabric is not what gives you that emotion. It's all these elements put together the right way that really gives you that sense of, of home and comfort. Absolutely. What do you think then is the key to a successful relationship between client and designer? What do you feel is the key to a successful relationship between a client and designer? I think that it is to listen to them to give them what they're asking for, but with a different slant to it, with a step further than what they would have imagined. Keep a very professional in your billing, in your contracts, in how you present the job. So there's no question ever left sort of floating up in the middle of the air. I think if they feel that you are in control as a professional and as a creative person I think then they relax because they feel that you have it you know under control uh, and I think is to be friendly but not to become their best friends uh, to always know that there's a line that separates us one to the other uh, to be friendly but not too much. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think that maybe some younger or more inexperienced designers can fall into a mindset of thinking that they just have to say yes to everything the client proposes or wants and sort of appease them. But I think ultimately the reason someone turns to a designer is because they want their help and they want their vision. And you have to have confidence in, in your decisions to be able to sell what that vision is to them and get them on board of course, you know, within within reason, because ultimately it's their home, but they do right. turn to us to be the expert. So we can't just say, okay, well, if you want it this way, let's change it. You have to Whatever you want. have convictions. Well, and I don't think that if you do that, that they will finally respect you. Mm-hmm. Because all of a sudden they start to say, well, what, yeah, what, what are they doing? I'm telling them everything to do. Uh, and I think you have to be able to be very clear of what each person brings to the table. Their responsibility is is to give you all the information, to pay the bills, to not keep changing their minds every 10 minutes and be clear of what their intent is. And yours is to be creative, run a business professionally, do all the billing and everything according to what your contract is. And I think that that will, in the final analysis, is what will make a client happy with who you are. Um, And I mean, I think that, listen, there's always problems. Every job has a problem because this you're opening a Pandora's box each time. (laughs) But I think that if you follow it in the right way, with the right sort of set of protocol in your in your business the the odds are in your in your side 
Well, to that end, I, I will say there are so many things that I admire about you, but one of them, and aside from your beautiful eye and beautiful style, is that you're a very keen business person. And in addition to being very keen, you've also been very generous because you've held seminars and just recently over the course of the pandemic, you and um, our mutual friend, Timothy Corrigan, did a series of webinars about the business of design. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you structure your business? Because I feel that you're a wealth of knowledge and information, and there are so many designers listening in who could probably use your advice. What do you think are, if you could give, let's say, two or three takeaways for someone who's running their own business, what should they know? They should know that their gift is one that with a higher power gave them and that they must always be true to their, to their gut, to their sense of what it is that they're doing and their, to their creativity. I mean, as I said before, is how they bill, how they present, all these things, you know, never give it away for nothing. I think if you give your work away for nothing, it's never really truly appreciated. Uh, and to like to stick to their guns. I mean, to fight for what they believe in. And it may not, they may not win every battle, but I think that if you stick to what you believe in, creative wise, you will feel better about yourself, about what it is that you're doing. Um, because if you're in it for the big bucks, you're in the wrong business. <laughs> there are far easier ways to make money than that of you know being an interior designer. <laughs> right. It can be but painful. If, if you stick to what you believe, the payment is a bigger one than than money, because you've you've kept your soul true, and I think that uh, that's what I've tried to follow. I mean, I've always tried to to really to stick to what I believe uh, and fight for it uh, and not just whatever you want. Yeah, I'll do it. Um, because then you, you don't feel really satisfied. Correct. Yeah, that's a that's such a valuable lesson to remember and keep in mind. Now, you have a pretty multifaceted business because in addition to your design firm, you also have a showroom. VW home. How did that come to be? Uh, in a really foolish way. Um, <laughs> my landlord came to me and said, the other half of the floor is empty. Would you be interested? And I didn't need any more space for the office. But <clears throat> in all the years of traveling, I was always seeing things that I would want to buy, but never, you know, had the room to store it or, you know, the, the place to sell it. And I thought, oh, okay, great. I'll open a showroom. And um, I signed the lease. I bought a round-the-world ticket. And I went around the world buying stuff um, to put in the showroom. We produce fabrics, furniture that I've designed. We now have in the showroom. Uh, it's, it was a place for me, this is horrible to say, so nobody follow my point of view, <laughs> I, a place to play. You know, I walk into that showroom, I see things that I bought all over the world, 
and it gives me an enormous pleasure. And then it gives designers literally from around the world a place to find things that maybe are not as common in other retail, you know, or design spaces. Right. So it sounds like it stemmed sort of from your love of collecting. What are some of your favorite things to collect? Anything. I am, you know, I can find something to buy in an empty room. Um, (laughs) But, you know, my work is not about a lot of stuff. So it's a way of whether I'm in the jungle in, in Borneo to find things that I find appealing, which really sort of always is being picked with the same point of view. So it can really work in all different types of environments because the, the things that I'm buying are always a very clear um, point of view that's selecting them. Uh, they're, they're modern, they're, they're objects that can work within a very contemporary environment or that they can work in a more eclectic sort of space. I don't buy just one of each thing. I always try to find collections that can then go into the showroom and be sold as a total collection, whether it is, as I just bought in January when I was uh, in Japan, I bought a collection of all these sort of uh, bronze urns that are used in tea ceremony. You know, I bought not just one, I bought 19 of them. Uh, So people can buy three, they can buy one, they can buy six. Um, So it's, it's, I'm trying to fulfill a sort of desire in me to acquire things but willing to let them go when somebody comes in and buys them. Right. And that can be harder with some things than others, I would assume. No. You don't get attached? No, I got the pleasure of buying them and I'll get the pleasure in selling them. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, I think they're, you know, like quick love affairs. Mm -hmm. You know, you meet, you connect, and then you go on your own way. Right. <laughs> um, but if I'm selling them to my clients, each time I walk in and I see them, I still, what I love about them is the memory of where I found them and how I found them and, and the whole process that I had to go through to get them to the showroom. It's not about owning them myself. It's about just the memories I love that. That's great perspective. That's really nice. Well, if not, I'd own a lot of stuff. Well, you'd don't have room for. You'd run out of room, or you'd be depressed all the time because you'd be missing everything. Exactly. (laughs) What percentage of your time do you spend on design projects versus product design and the showroom and writing books and these other facets of your business? Um. I do them all basically very fast. So there's always time that I need to find more things to do. Uh, I don't, when I'm designing a project, I don't like suffer over it. It is, I go from my gut and when I'm doing it, I have a, a thought and that's it. I don't, 
you know, try to, oh, should it be this way? Should it be that way? Do I like this? Do I like that? It's I see something, I like it, and that's it. I then go on to the next uh, part of the process. Uh, it's the same thing when I'm traveling and buying. I mean, I, I just, I look at it, I like it, I buy it. I don't suffer over things. Mm-hmm. I think, I personally, I suffer over other things, but not about design, because I think that you have to trust your gut. If there's a message to the designers that are starting is trust your gut. Each time that you start to question it and, and going through, oh, do I like it this way or that way? You're really playing up to your insecurities. I think your gut is 99.9 correct all the time. And the, the, the more you question it, the less you get away from your instinct. Mm-hmm. That's so true. I think the most successful designers are those that come from an instinctual place and are incredibly decisive and also really good editors. You have to be able to edit. Well, you know, I think not having any formal education, whether in normal education or design, it has always been my my judgment has always been to what I feel is right for me as a creative person. Right. Uh, not rules. And there's always rules. I mean, there's rules how far you keep away a coffee table. How high do you usually do seating? Those are rules that have been proven through time. But the sense of you must do it this way because that's the way you were taught. I think it's it sort of limits you to um, to not evolving, and I think that what has and it's going to be close to fifty years I've been doing this, which is a truly scary thought, um, <laughs> is the fact that I'm always am evolving, always looking at things in a different way, and not being really caught by rules that I must do it this way. It's always, how can I do it differently? How can I have it evolve? You know, right? I, it's given me longevity in my in in the industry. Absolutely. Well, to that end, how do you think the industry has changed most in recent years? What challenges do we have now as designers that you didn't have maybe a decade ago that we have to deal with now? I think the challenge is more and more people entering the industry, more and more competition from outside elements, whether it is uh, restoration hardware or, you know, just catalogs. Too much information that has been put out there for the consumers to start to think that they have a, a direction in design. Um, I think more and more showrooms closing, more and more industry that does not support the designers. Um, I think it's a really, really difficult time for us. And it's a time that really is closing our industry. You know, you walk into the design centers and there's in many places, more empty show, more empty spaces than there are 
showrooms. Right. I mean, certain indi- you know, fabric companies that keep buying everybody up and, you know, which then limits what is the possibilities of new ideas entering the industry because it's all being done by the bottom line. Um, you know, and so many clients that feel like I, I can do it myself. You can walk into a, a place like a restoration hardware and find a very clear point of view, colored, you know, coordinated, and say, hey, who needs to hire a designer when I can come here and do it all myself and not having an industry, our industry, pointing out to the consumer why you hire a designer. You don't hire a designer to get a discount. You hire a designer to create an environment, not just a room full of furniture. And nobody is really putting that out there to support us as an industry, whether it's through our showrooms that sell to us or through our associations of designers. It is just dying. And I don't think that if it keeps going the way it is, I think 10, 15 years, this industry is going to be just reduced to such a small nucleus that it, mm. it's really sad. It's sad because you look at magazines and you look at what they're putting out there. It is not supporting the designers. It's not pointing out what it is that we bring and not just what, oh, you know, Mary, who's a model, how she put her apartment together and threw it together. It it just, it's, it's so much in the magazines, personality driven, you know, you know, sort of celebrity driven instead of creative wise driven. Right. I don't know how we get back to a place where the designer is celebrated more. I mean, there, there's been this sort of democratization of design to a degree, as you mentioned, that you can walk into a, a big box store and cobble your home together and it's going to look decent i would argue that you know the person walking into a restoration hardware isn't necessarily the same person who's going to call vincent wolf on the phone and hire you to do their home anyway because it's just a different level of sophistication and maybe the budget isn't there to hire you but you know i do i disagree with you because i have clients that you know, have spent a good deal of money and have a good deal of money. And they said, you know, for my beach house, I just went to Restoration Hardware. It was easy. It was simple. I didn't have to think about it. I didn't have to wait for upholstery to be done or fabric to be shipped. And they've, they've done it there. I mean, what's so sad is you look at the design magazines that used to support like when Margaret Russell used to be in El Decor or right. Architectural Digest or all the old, you know, editors and editors and chiefs that had a, a history with design. They don't have that anymore. Those magazines keep getting thinner and thinner and thinner because, A, people are online, you know, manufacturers are no longer advertising because it's no longer bringing them the business. Uh, it's, 
it's it's sad. How do you bring it back? I think it's we as designers have to start to really band together and mm -hmm. demand that our work is being shown the right way. I mean, so many more people are now doing books because that's really the only way that you can get your work out there. Right. Um, but that only gives the consumer one point of view instead of having a publication that shows it to you across the board. Um, I think it, it politically it has a lot to do with it too because I don't think people are willing to take chances right now. Mm -hmm. They're so afraid and it's so afraid physically and politically and financially that it's... Um, it sort of freezes us, freezes us out of the, the marketplace. Um, I don't know. I mean, well, you know, I think you've made so many important points, and we are at a time in our society and in our culture where I feel like because everything has become so polarized, people are afraid to state an opinion for fear of offending someone who may not share that opinion. And conversely, as you mentioned, you know, the magazines are getting thinner and thinner and advertisers are pulling out. And a lot of times they're catering to the advertisers they do have left. And so there's been this sort of dilution of a lot of the design that we are seeing get published. There's already so few opportunities to be published because there are so few magazines and they've reduced the number of issues that they're producing every year. So that automatically um drills down on the number of, of projects that we can actually see get published. But, you know, I remember growing up and falling in love with interior design because I was seeing these incredible aspirational homes. You know, it's not about necessarily having a blue chip art collection, but it's about having a real point of view and creating something that's inspiring and different and unique and not just about, you know, a DIY sort of approach. So I, I, if, I don't know what the answer is. And I, I do agree with you. I think it takes, you know, us as a community coming together to say enough of this. We really right. want to see good design. Well, and, and sticking together. I mean, even when it comes to, and whatever, when Tim and I did the, you know, the seminar, I mean, it's people talking about how much do designers charge. You know, everybody says, oh, I don't want to tell you how much I charge. What, what do I care if somebody else, another designer knows how much I charge? Mm -hmm. If we all are charging about the same, it makes it easier, you know, for us to be putting across a, a united front um, it's, it's really, I don't know. I mean, I want to keep creating. I want to be able to, to keep having my imagination, you know, just expand. And it, it just, it's hard. And the more, the harder it gets, the less creativity, because the more work you do, the more creative ideas come out. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's just keep hoping that what is out there in the future is better than what is here now uh, and not letting go of our hopes and our dreams and our creative process that really needs to, to keep evolving uh, for it to survive.
Right. Well, to that end, as a creative entrepreneur, given the state of affairs in our industry, do you feel it's important to have more than one revenue stream in this business? Well, it's always been, you know, I'm a refugee. You know, Mm -hmm. I survived, came up from the bottom. So I've always felt that the more ways of bringing money in, the better it is for for a business. Um, You know, whether it is, you know, just having a showroom, doing freelance, doing design projects commercially and residentially. Uh, it's, it's, it's all feeds the kitty, you know, and just, it's how you fill the pot up to, to keep it going. I mean, um, we do commercial, we do residential, uh, we try to do product design, you know, doing the books. I mean, with me, I do photography. I mean, you, you just do as much as you can. I mean, in today's market, I mean, to just say, no, I'm going to sit here and wait until somebody knocks at the door. I mean, you are running a risk that the door may be closed, you know, permanently if you don't keep trying to to expand yourself. Right. Well, and, and it's twofold because, as you said, you know, it's sort of a way to make your um, your business stronger and less prone to risk when things, you know, slow down in the economy or what have you. But it's also a good way of keeping one's creativity sharp because you're using that creativity in multiple ways, whether it's through product design or, as you said, you know, writing a book or doing some freelance um, work. And then, of course, with design. So I think it's really important in terms of not only stretching one's creativity and using it in different ways, but also being open to these different processes because they can inform other parts of one's business. There's always new lessons. Well, and one feeds the other. I mean, when I do a commercial job, you know, ideas that come from that feed my residential or vice versa. And it's, you know, you you have don't have the choices anymore to just be elitist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, it just, it can be the kiss of death. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's very funny because uh, people, prospective clients, are saying, well, what's your minimum? I don't have a minimum financially of, for me to do a job. I will do a job that the money that's in, that the budget, will allow for me to be able to do a, a good creative job. And um, I, I think that you have to think out of the box. And I mean, listen, it gets harder and harder and harder to think out of the box. I mean, especially if you've been in the industry for a long time, you've gotten accustomed to your routine. But I mean... Yeah, you have to keep putting it out there, um, whether it's by good deeds, whether, you know, it's charity work, whether it is doing things to help others that your creativity can help. Uh, you, you just have to 
you know, doing things to, right. to make your soul feel good. Yeah. So you mentioned you don't have a minimum budget to take on a project. What compels you to take on a project? What makes it enticing for you? Uh, the, to be able to be creative mm -hmm. and to be able to have enough of a budget that will allow you to let your creativity, you know, come through. Um, you know, the, I've always loved the word challenge. You know, when a client says, oh, you should make this job be, you know, make it a challenge. Um, I used to say I hate the word challenge. But now I think to myself, well, you know, put it to work for you. Put, put the word challenge, make it seem something that you think, wow, I never thought I would have been able to do that for that amount of money. Uh, and I, I love what I did. And it doesn't show a price. Uh, I think the most successful job is one that you don't see how much it costs. Mm -hmm. Because it has nothing to do with money. Creativity, I think, doesn't have to do anything with money. It has to do with how much you're putting out there to, to make that job the best that you can. And if you can do that, you can do it really with very little money. We all rather do it with more money. But I think to, you know, to just let your imagination, you know, fly. Right. Well, where do you I mean, What do you hear from, from other designers? I mean, what do you hear in the industry of how they feel things are going? Well... In general, I've heard from most people that I've been speaking with that they've been quite busy, that as people have um, spent more time at home, they're realizing how important it is for it to look and feel and function well. Um, and so they're getting more business than they anticipated getting during a pandemic. So that's been a key takeaway is that people are busy and that's a good thing. Um in terms of what they're taking, what they're taking on, or when they accept a project, I would say across the board, generally speaking, people will say, you know, it, I have to be excited about the house and what it could be. The budget has to be good so that I can execute that vision. But primarily, the thing that people come back to is that they want to work with people who are nice and who... Yes. Um, they enjoy who are kind people charitable people people who are doing good things in the world someone you'd want to go to lunch with no one wants to work for a jerk it seems regardless of how big their budget is i mean i find that it's it just whatever amount of money you're making on it the the suffering that you go through mm -hmm. when you're dealing with not ladies and gentlemen is not worth worth the what it takes out of you oh, it's um, i mean I, I think that it's it's interesting i think what you with people like that whatever they put out is what they get back and if you're dealing with clients that are problems and fighting and screaming and all that the jobs never turn out well because they attract all that negative energy 
that they're putting out, they get back. And I find that when I work with really nice people who appreciate what you do and, and just put out good energy, those jobs always turn out well. They always have, you know, much more than you ever expected it to be because the people have put in that good thoughts, you know. So that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, when someone trusts the process, they know you and your work and they're coming to you because they love what you do, not because, you know, the next person needed a bigger retainer or whatever, then the end result is always better. I always say, if you just trust the process and let creative people do what they do best, you're going to get a better result than if you try to micromanage or beat someone down and force your opinions on them. You have to be open-minded. Well, I mean, when you go to a lawyer, do you tell them how to, you know, judge a case or a doctor where they should operate or your dentist, which tooth to drill in? No, because <laughs> they're professionals and that's what we are. I mean, and when, you know, I say I have a filing cabinet that's close to 50 years deep. You have very limited experience because you're judging everything through what you like and you don't like. Mm -hmm. I am judging it by things that may not be my personal taste, but I am, you know, just have a much broader experience of ways to deal with problems and what really looks well in a final analysis, right. not what you think could be, because I think that most people have very little, you know, vision and it's their fears and their insecurities that are making those judgments where for me i can see it finished i can look at a i can if i've designed a space i can see it finished and i know what works and what those things that people usually question are the things that really excite me most about the job that i've done yeah. Sure. What inspires you, Vincent? Where do you turn for inspiration? Travel, which is a big problem right yes. now. <laughs> uh, I mean, the idea of going out there and going to places that are not traveled much by other people are, are the things that really make me feel the happiest. Uh, mm -hmm. to, I think that when you're seeing new things, you're absorbing and I think that that's what young kids, you know, when they're seeing new things, you're young again, you're, you're learning. And I think that when you stop learning is when you stop getting old. And uh, travel to me just brings me, you know, a level of excitement, you know, that I really yearn for. Uh, I think being a house by the ocean, just laying there and looking at the ocean to me just just recharges me and makes me look at things that I usually may not look at or pay attention to. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that those are the things that really bring my creativity to the surface. Right. Once we're able to travel again, where would you most like to go? Uh, I've been, I was supposed to go in January to northern Sudan, which is where the, um, the last group of pharaohs were. 
there were the Nubians, and uh, there are hundreds of pyramids, which you really only see in you know, in in uh, Cairo. Um, I wanted to go, and there was political problems, and the person that books my travel said. I, I cannot let you go there. It's you're going to be in danger. I said, well, what's the worst that can happen? You're going to die. Well, we're going to die anyway. I might as well do it seeing something new, but I think it's starting to open up. And um, so I'd like to, when I can travel, go back there again. Um, Want to go back again to Egypt. I love Egypt. Um, you know, just places I, the first time I went to Bhutan was in 98, and there were no tourists. I love going to places that are unspoiled by hordes of tourists going in and the people who live there readjusting their point of view to suit tourism. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm always looking for a place that offers me that sort of innocence of, of, um, of an environment. Right. The authenticity of, of that yeah. place, a sense of place. Even if it's uncomfortable, even if you maybe have to be sleeping in the ground or it doesn't match your normal way of living. I think that that's part of the exciting, you know, thing of traveling to stepping out of your comfort level and experiencing things in a different way. Definitely. Well, Vincent, if you could go back in time, is there a piece of advice that you would give to your younger self? Gee, buy Apple stock. <laughs> uh, look for artists, you know, look for the Basquiat's that were selling for $50. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, that's when I do mental play. That's when I do, you know, what would I be if I knew now? <laughs> If I knew then what I know now, uh, it's what of things. I think I really, you know, it's it's always to me a um, when I think of the limitations that I gave myself and the sort of things that I would not allow myself to do that if I would have done then, where would I be now? Hmm. You know, to be doing this for 50 years and still have a place in the industry. Um, I never graduated high school. I was broke. You know, I had to like scrape to find food to eat. Uh, apartments that I got thrown out because I didn't have money to pay the rent. And I think of where I am now. I look at my beach house. I look at my loft. I look at what I have. I mean, hell, man. Who would have thought that I would ever be where I am now? So, yes, could I have done more? Um, I think that but with the limitations that I had, I've done the most that I could have done. You know, yes, there's always more that I could do. And things that I could have said, no, I am not going to do this, or I demand more for myself than what you're offering. But, you know, it's um, to say it is what it is, to quote our president. Um, 
it's i'm i'm happy that i have been able to to have lived the life that i have lived seen what i have seen done what i have done and created what i have created all coming from god and all coming from mm-hmm. pure ignorance of what i should not have tried to do and still did you know so i'm i'm content would i want more yes uh you know but i think that a higher power has been very kind to me in the gifts that it's given me and my health and my experiences so i'm i i think of so many other people that you know you think of those people in the hospitals that are are ill and can't even see somebody who loves them you know and i'm sitting here healthy right like wow yeah thank you thank you that's great perspective and exactly great perspective and there's i mean is there anything better than being able to look back and and be happy with what one's achieved and be satisfied. You know, like you said, there's always well, I, more to I didn't do. say I was satisfied. I am saying that what I've gotten has been more than I ever thought I would. Mm. Um, would I want, you know, 20, $10 million jobs to do? I would love it, you know, because it means more work that I can share with the people that work with me and, and mm-hmm. all of that. But you know, it's uh, you have to be happy with what you have um, because it could be worse. That's true. Maybe that that's it. a very negative way of looking at it, but <laughs> you know, it's yeah, I'm happy. Well, good. What, um, as we wrap up, I'll ask you one last question What is currently giving you hope in the world of design or otherwise? Oh. Oh my God. That there's a higher power that's watching over us, that it won't let us go into a volcano and, and just just disappear. I think that we it's up to us to make it better. It's up to us that if we don't like the politics to make it better. If, if we are not well to do the things that will make us better, to keep creating, because that's the biggest hope that we all have is, is on creativity, whether it is coming up with a vaccine or coming up with a better way of living. And I think we all have that capability in that we cannot let it just fade away because of things are as bad. I mean, when Ginsburg died this week, I thought, oh my God, but you have to think that woman fought for the best that she could do until the last minute. And we all have to do the same thing if we want our lives to be better. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. What a powerful reminder so, so true. Vincent, this has been such a joy, such a pleasure to chat with you and learn more about your story. Thank you you for sharing your insights and your wonderful wisdom with us. Well, thank you for for wanting to chat with me. I really appreciate it. 
and you know for all the people that are listening yes to definitely well hopefully this will be be behind us soon and um, i look forward to seeing you hopefully sooner rather than later all right take good care yes ma'am you too have Bye, a good Vincent. week That was creative entrepreneur and interior designer, Vincent Wolf. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to visit us online at palomacontreras.com under the podcast tab, where you can find more episodes featuring inspiring conversations with creatives. You can listen directly on our website or subscribe via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the style files, please consider spreading the word and leaving us a positive rating or review. It will only take a few seconds of your time and will make a huge difference for us. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.